Resource Center. Okay? Daniel chapter 7. If you'll turn there. Let's pray. Father, we have the privilege here of opening up your word and reading the written word of God. And even though this was written 2,500 years ago, we know it is for us. It is for us today. And I pray that we would be attentive, that these prophecies that are given to us are certain and they are sure, that every dot and tittle of your word will be fulfilled, not that it might be, that we would never fall into the categories of scoffing at the return of the Lord. The world does. But we have a glorious future that is ahead for us. So help us be attentive. To be reminded, we want to check the ringers on our phones and turn them off right now. We want to be free from distractions. And we want to be focused on what you are speaking to us in the next few moments as we look at this portion of scripture that is before us. So bless this time. Teach us. Encourage us, stir our hearts in every way towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've looked at the, the first 10 verses of chapter 7. We're taking our time going through this chapter. And of course, Daniel in this first vision that he has, that he records in his book, he has this vision during the reign of Belshazzar of Babylon. And of course, as he describes the vision to us, he, he writes the sum of them, that is, uh, what he saw. There's four great beasts that come out of the sea. They're not sea creatures, but they are four different beasts from, you know, different from one another. The first one he describes as a lion that had eagle's wings standing on two feet like a man. The second one, like a bear, that had three ribs in its mouth and it devoured much flesh. The third creature was that of a leopard with four wings of a bird. And then the fourth beast is told to us, but Daniel doesn't tell us what kind of beast it is. He says that it was dreadful, it was terrible, exceedingly strong. Verse 8, we read that the beast had horns, plural. We're going to continue the read, and we will see that it's told to us specifically that this beast has ten horns, and verse 8 tells us that there was a little horn that came up among them, and um, among the, the ten horns and uh, three of the horns were plucked out by the roots. And this little horn, again, is going to be the focus of this chapter. A couple things that will be the focus, this fourth beast with the ten horns and this little horn. Daniel is really going to uh, ask about the fourth beast, what this is all about. And then also, last time we saw Daniel in verses 9 and 10, the vision would extend to heaven that the vision of the Ancient of Days, his garment white as snow, his hair like pure wool, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And of course, speaking of the vision of the throne of God, and that vision is going to continue in verses 13 and 14. Now, as we've discussed in details, these four beasts that are before us in chapter 7, we do know that they represent four Gentile kingdoms or empires. 
We saw that in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel had that image uh, that he gave the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar actually had that dream of that image of a man made of different metals, four different metals. And in that, it describes four different empires from the time of Daniel to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, here's the dream, here's the interpretation of the dream, that you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, but you are going to be replaced by another, the chest and arms of silver, which is the Medo-Persian Empire. And if you've been with us in our study traveling through Daniel, you know that that actually took place in Daniel's day, in chapter 5, as the handwriting on the wall before Belshazzar and his, his party that he was having. Daniel was brought out to interpret the handwriting, and he said that, that your kingdom is number and that you're going to be killed this very night, and your kingdom's going to be handed over to the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happened that night as Cyrus, the king of the Persians, led the troops into the city of Babylon, and they killed Belshazzar. So it went from the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver in Daniel's time. But he said that the Medo-Persian Empire is going to replace the, Medo, uh, the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, the Medo-Persian Empire. Matter of fact... In the next chapter, chapter 8, we're going to see some of the most amazing detailed prophecy concerning the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, Alexander the Great, and then one that points to the future leader that is spoken here, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, as he's called the little horn there in chapter 8. So we'll sort all this out so it's not confusing to you. But then the fourth empire in Daniel chapter 2, in that image that Nebuchadnezzar saw, was the leg of iron. That was a Roman empire. And then there was the feet. It was iron mingled with clay. It was extended from the legs. It was associated with uh, the Roman empire. It had ten toes. We were told that those ten toes, specifically in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, are ten kings that would be in existence at the time that Jesus Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom. So there's this, this new Roman Empire, or this what scholars call the revived Roman Empire, that will be in existence with ten kings that are spoken of that will be in, in the last days, at the time that Christ comes on the scene and establishes his kingdom. Now, chapter 7 gives us further information about that revived Roman Empire, the last empire on the scene before the coming of the Lord. Amongst those ten kings, those ten toes of chapter 2, uh, the ten horns of chapter 7, there was a little horn, and that is the title of a future leader. And Daniel's very interested, in, and I think he's troubled by this little horn. And there's a lot that is there. So if you haven't gone over Daniel chapter 2, I would encourage you, uh, listen to that teaching on our website or download the app. It's going to be very helpful for you. And we know that as there are some that look at these four Bs, they correlate it with chapter 2, the four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, Roman, and the revived Roman Empire. There are others that see these first three beasts, the lion standing on two feet, uh, the bear with three ribs in its mouth, uh, the leopard that had four wings, that they are actually contemporaries that are standing. The language seems to indicate that 
before the fourth beast, which is dreadful, which is terrible, uh, devoured everything in its way. They had ten horns and this little horn that comes up among them, which is a title for the future leader, as I said, the Antichrist. So this little horn that will be a world leader is going to be spoken of. And these empires, these beasts here of chapter 7, very well could be in existence in the last days, standing before and in subjection to the fourth beast and the Antichrist is going to be a world leader. So we'll continue to talk about that. Let's pick it up at verse 11 as I watch then because of the sound of the pompous words. It's, it's talking about that, that little horn, which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I find uh, this to be very uh, interesting and telling. A couple things here. This little horn uh, that is uh, coming up among the ten horns of the fourth beast. Notice that he has a mouth speaking pompous words. That is repeated here in the chapter. And when something is repeated like that, we saw it in, in verse 8. We see it here in verse 11. We're going to see it in verse 20 and verse 25. We're going to see it repeated in chapter 8 and other places of Daniel. We see also this little horn, again, a title of the Antichrist, that it is told to us in the New Testament that he's going to be speaking pompous words. They're going to be speaking, it might be in your translation, great things. Now, to the world, they are great things. The world's going to say, hey, this guy is a great orator. He has the answers. We know that chapter 8, next chapter, is going to tell us that he's going to be able to conquer through uh, schemes. And he's very cunning. Uh, he's speaking blasphemous words towards the Most High God. But the world is going to embrace the things that he is saying. And that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because we are seeing that our world and our culture is embracing the lies of the world more and more from our leaders, right? They are calling good evil and evil good. And we see that Isaiah spoke of that. And there's going to be the Antichrist that's going to come along that is going to speak things that the world's going to say, this is great. He's a great orator. He's a great speaker. He's speaking great things and, and is going to embrace it. Daniel's emphasizing that. But they are blasphemous things against God. In Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, I'm going to reference it. Let me read it to you. You can read it uh, in your studies. But Revelation chapter 13, speaking of this little horn, it is told to us that he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, which is three and a half years. He opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So this future leader called the Antichrist, that there's going to be a time where he's going to blaspheme the name of God, his tabernacle. And we tie it in with what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is an amazing chapter to me. Because in that chapter, it is compacted where Paul talks about the rapture of the church. He talks about the day of the Lord. He talks about the Antichrist. He talks about the rebuilt temple. He talks about the abomination of desolations. All that is packed into a few verses. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
verse 4, that this little horn will oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God or that which is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So what the Bible and what Daniel's going to explain to us and what the book of Revelation tells us is this one, the Antichrist, he's going to continue for 42 months, or that is three and a half years. Now, when we get to chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, there is a timeline there that is very important for us to understand. And if we don't understand it, you're going to get all mixed up and goofed up, you know, in your end time studies and understanding what the Bible says that Daniel's going to be told a prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel concerning your people, Daniel, who are who? The Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. And 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. 69 of those weeks, and that term week, whenever you read it in the Old Testament, it means seven years. It's like if I say to you a decade, you know how long that is, don't you? That is 10 years. If I say a century, it's 100 years. Well, you read that term week in the Old Testament, it means seven years. So 69 weeks, when we go through it, we will go through it carefully, that they have already passed. There's been a gap of time. There's still a one-week period called Daniel's 70th week, or what we call the tribulation period. It will begin, as Daniel's going to tell us here in his prophecies, with the coming of the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with Israel for one week, and in the middle of the week, that the sacrifices will stop. And what is amazing is there's no temple in Jerusalem right now. There hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years. But you can go to Israel, and we've taken groups there, and some of you have actually been in to what is called the Temple Institute. And what they're doing is they're preparing all for the temple worship and sacrifices. They have all the instruments, all the furnishings ready to go. You can go to the old city of Jerusalem. they got the seven-branch golden menorah that is there. It's in a case. Uh, they got, uh, they're training priests, the priestly garments. They're all ready to go. Do not be surprised when the time comes that they begin to do sacrifices, that they do it without even a building. Because that's what happened when Zerubbabel came back, as you read the book of Ezra, after the 70 years of captivity. Remember that Daniel is in captivity uh, here in Babylon. After the 70 years, Cyrus, he makes the decree, you can go back and rebuild the temple. They pushed away all the rubble because Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem in the second temple. And they made the altar there and they began sacrifices even before they built the second temple. It was interesting, the last time we were in Jerusalem and went through the Temple Institute, they said, we don't really need a building, we just need the altar to start doing sacrifices. But there will be a temple, we know is going to be rebuilt, they've already started it, got all the plans, they're just waiting for the okay for them to build it. That may be a part of the covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. And in the middle of that seven-year period is what is called the abomination of desolations. Jesus spoke of that, didn't he, in Matthew chapter 24. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, he said, flee, because it will be great tribulation, such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. And at that time, we know that the Antichrist, as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, or chapter 2, verse 4, that he will go into that rebuilt temple, he will claim himself as God. 
So he speak in blasphemous things against the Lord. He will proclaim himself as God. And anyone who does not align with the Antichrist and worship the beast and take his mark, then they're going to be persecuted very heavily by the Antichrist. So that's what the whole of Scripture is telling us. So to the world, he speaks great things. They embrace it, but towards God, it's blasphemous things. And we know also that second of all, number one, he speaks pompous words. He is called, secondly, the beast, which is another title for the Antichrist. I believe there's 33 titles for Antichrist in the Old Testament. There's 13 titles in the New Testament. John is, I believe, the only one that calls him, actually, the Antichrist. He is called the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one. That's all in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, is he's called the beast. We are told that he's directly under the power and influence of Satan. So they worship the dragon, what we read in Revelation chapter 13, which is Satan, who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who's like the beast and who's able to make war with him? It amazes me that there is a future time where the world's going to break out in satanic worship. But all those, you know, that worship a false god, and that's all Satan that is behind that. So there is going to be the worship of the beast. He will stand up and he will say, I am God. He will do away with the one world church, Revelation chapter 17. The woman riding the beast, that false church that will be on the scene in the first half of the tribulation period. And then in the middle, he will destroy that false church. And he will say, I alone am to be worshipped. I alone you are to make allegiance to. And we know that he will continue for 42 months, as Revelation chapter 3 says. So that last week is divided up into two periods. The last half, the great tribulation period. And that's where Jesus says it will be great tribulation such as the world has never known or ever will see again. And as here this vision is giving, that it is going to be the little horn, the beast, the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition, he's going to eventually be done away with. Revelation chapter 19 speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we were told at that time that the Antichrist will be thrown then into the lake of fire. Here Daniel says, given to the burning flame. And we see that the dominion of man will be done away with, and it will be God's kingdom that will remain. Now remember that in chapter 2, that the rock that hit the image, it crumbled and the rock grew. That speaks of the rock, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 12 that we read here is, again, um, there's different thoughts. What do you do with this verse? It says the rest of the beast, the other three beasts, had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I think it very well could mean that when Christ comes back, that we know that there's going to be nations. We know from Psalm chapter 2. That messianic psalm, the nations plot a vain thing. Why do the nations rage? And that when Christ comes back, he will rule over the nations with a rod of iron. It will be an enforced righteousness. And there will be nations, because Zechariah chapter 14 speaks of the nations coming up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And those who don't do that, that they will experience the, the plague of God. 
So there will be nations. So it could be very well, this is again evidence, telling us that those first three beasts are contemporaries that will be in existence in the last days that stand before the fourth beast. That's what the language seems to indicate to us. And then verse 12, that they will continue in some capacity in the millennium reign of Christ, of course, under the subject of Christ. So as we look at this, this vision, and, and then it changes from what is uh, on earth to back to heaven in verse 13. Let's read it as we look at it. So the, the beast, the little horn, will be done away with. Uh, Christ will come and rule. That's what verse 13 and 14 speaks of as it is Daniel saying, I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So one like the Son of Man, an obvious reference to Jesus Christ, the title Son of Man is used over 80 times in the New Testament. This is the only place in the Old Testament where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. Jesus, of course, in the Gospel referred to himself as the Son of Man, and it would upset the religious leaders. It would be that, as he would say, I'm the Son of Man, that they knew that it was reference here to verse 13 of Daniel 7. And notice one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus was arrested in the garden, he was taken before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin council, and before Caiaphas, the high priest. And in Matthew records that the high priest said, Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answered and said, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and the coming of, on the clouds of heaven. And Caiaphas, when he heard that, he tore his clothes and he yelled, and he says, he's spoken blasphemy. He's deserving of death. And they condemned him to death at that time, and they also beat him at that time. They knew that he was claiming to be the one that Daniel is speaking of. A couple of days before that, when the disciples came to Jesus, said, tell us, what is the sign of your comings and the sign of the end of the age? That in that teaching called the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus would tell them that the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. We know that Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that Jesus is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Now, I want to remind you of that because it is very clear from the scriptures, Jesus himself made it very clear that when he returns, that is, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, when he comes back literally and physically to this world, and we are going to come back with him, when it comes to the aspect of the return of the Lord, there's two different aspects. There's the rapture of the church that can happen at any moment. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then as we are taken, we'll be with the Lord for seven years. And then the second coming of Jesus Christ, when he comes back, we know that Revelation chapter 19 tells us that the armies of heaven are going to come with them. That's you and me. Jude says he comes with ten thousands of his saints. And he's going to come where Jesus said that every eye shall see him. It will be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Now, we live in a part of the, the country 
where we see lightning storms. And when we see the lightning flashing from the east to the west, it's very spectacular. And, and, and you, you notice it. It's very clear. There are those who will come along. And those who in past have made false claims that Jesus is going to return, come back to this earth on this date. And when that didn't happen, they will try to explain it away. They will say, well, Jesus came back secretly. Or he came back spiritually. And if anybody ever says that to you, you can tell them that, no, that's not what the Bible says. That when he comes back, it won't be secret. Uh, every eye is going to see him. He's going to come back in great power and glory. And we are going to come back with him. So as we look at this, we know that Christ is going to come back to establish his kingdom. His kingdom is going to last forever. Now, when it says that he is coming with the clouds of heaven, what is meant by that? In Acts chapter 1, where we have recorded Jesus' ascension into heaven, as the disciples looked up towards heaven, they were told by two angels that this same Jesus, who was taken up to you into heaven, will, uh, in like manner, come back. And as he has been taken up into heaven, he's going to come back through the clouds, in other words. He's going to come back through the earth's atmosphere and touch down, as Zacharias says, on the Mount of Olives, the same mount where he ascended from. And when he does, we are told from Zechariah's prophecies that the mount will split in half. So are we talking literal clouds that are, comes on the clouds of heaven? Are we talking cumulus clouds, nimbus clouds? Or some say, well, maybe it's a reference to in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were in the wilderness. There was the pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day, leading them, speaking of the Shekinah glory of God. So is it speaking of him coming in great power and glory? Or is it in reference to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 tells us that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that is us coming back with him. So which one is it? I, I think all three are true. Because all three are true. We are going to come back with him. That he's going to come back in great power and glory. That he's going to come back through the clouds and touch down on the Mount of Olives. And the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, as we read it in this vision here. And notice verse 13, that they brought him, capital H, him, near before him, capital. This is a remarkable scene. It reminds me of what we read in Revelation chapter 5, as in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, there was a scroll. It is a seven-seal scroll, perhaps the title deed to the earth. And then there was the one who was like a lamb that was slaughtered, that had been slain, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him, him who sat on the throne. And then, of course, I made reference already to chapter 5, where that song is, is sung, that you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, that's Jesus, and have redeemed us to God by your blood, that's our Lord, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that's the church. And have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Here in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. And the Son of Man was given dominion and glory in the kingdom. That all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And his kingdom will be established forever. A couple things as we close here this morning. I want us here at Calvary Chapel to have a good understanding where things are headed especially as things are changing so quickly. 
I believe the signs that we see, the birth pangs, are indeed happening more frequently and with intensity. That as we read these prophecies of Daniel, make reference to the book of Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, some of you are very familiar with the prophecies concerning the end of the age, the coming of Christ. To some of you, this is all new. And it can be confusing, overwhelming, trying to sort it all out. We'll try to explain it as, as carefully as we can so you can understand what it is that the scenario that is before us as the day of the Lord comes, the second coming of Jesus Christ, all about the rapture of the church, all these things that we're going to be talking about as we go through this book. But I, I want us to understand this, whether we're familiar with Bible prophecy or we're not familiar with it, that the heart, listen, that the heart of prophecy is to know him, is to know him better. The Gospels reveal Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of Man, God, Son of God who came as the suffering Savior. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, the prophecies of his second coming reveal to us Jesus as the conquering and ruling Savior. All peoples shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not be destroyed. That we know that the book of Revelation the apocalypse, the revealing of Jesus Christ, the revealed Jesus to a, a greater, fuller degree that he is going to come back, that he's on the throne. So it helps us to know him. If we miss that, if we just get a timeline out and get our charts out and, you know, this aspect, and this is what this symbol means, that's all part of the study, but it is to know him better. I pray that you leave this place more in awe and more in love with the Lord and wonder of his grace and goodness than when you came in. And if we miss that, then we miss what the Lord wants to do in our hearts. The second thing is that we do know the future because the world is changing so quickly. And I believe that as we hear about, you know, more people are depressed, more people are feeling hopeless, they're more suicidal, they're more confused because they don't, don't know what the future holds. They're concerned about the future. And people are wondering what is before us. How bad is it going to get? As we have a culture that is leaving God out of their lives, that we see is getting worse and worse. We wonder how difficult is it going to be for our children, for our grandchildren. We wonder what's going to happen to our nation. In a couple of weeks, we'll be celebrating the birth of our nation, Independence Day. And I love our nation blessed to be here. God has blessed our nation in so many ways, but we are also a nation that said, we don't want you, God. That we are a nation that is calling evil good and good evil. That we are a nation that where we're headed spiritually is very concerning, as well as other aspects. And I know that the hope for this nation, not a hope, but the hope for this nation, for any nation, is a spiritual awakening and revival. And that's what I'm praying for. So the question this morning as we go through this and as we see what's going to happen that is before us leading to the return of Christ and his kingdom, how are we going to respond to that? Because what we're being told is that the world is being led to a time 
where God will intervene in the affairs of man in a more dramatic and incredible way than ever before in the history of mankind next to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And we are going to be reading that this world is not going to continue on as always. Peter would say the scoffers will come and say, where's the return of the Lord? You know, since your forefathers' time, things continue as they were before. It's not going to continue that way. And culture and society and non-believers are going to consider you and I kooks because we believe in the return of the Lord. And in the last days, as this perilous times, that we will suffer persecution. So how do we respond to all of this? Are we going to stand on the truth of God's word? Are we going to believe it? Are we not going to be ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of Christ for salvation? For whoever believes, that is the hope for anyone and for any nation to know that every dot and tittle is going to be fulfilled, that it's going to come to pass. And we can have confidence, and as we know that there's a future before us, that there's also difficulty we think about how difficult it will be for our friends and family that don't know the Lord if the rapture of the church was to happen and the day of the Lord began. You know, that we think about those things, don't we? But that should give us more urgency to be a light and truth and live for Christ and be a witness for him. Please, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the word of God. And you don't have to to just be heavy-handed and forceful and obnoxious and all of this. You be a light. And God's going to give you opportunity to speak truth into people's lives and the gospel into people's lives. You, You wait and see. You pray about, Lord, what divine appointment may I have today? What opportunities do I have? But they're going to see the gospel being worked out in your life, first of all, and then the words that you speak as well. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God of salvation forever, whoever believes. And this world's not going to get brighter and more rosy and more cheery, that it is going to be perilous times. The church is going to be taken to be with Christ. I can't wait for that time. And as we think about it and as we consider it, it causes me, first of all, prophecy is given so that we can know him, Second of all, so we can know the future, but it helps us in the present, okay? It is revealing Jesus to us to a greater degree, and it helps us to live for him now. Even as John in his epistle, he says that when we see him, we will be like him, and he who has this hope purifies himself. And we don't know the day or the hour of his return. As I mentioned to you, the return of the Lord has two different aspects. Just as Jesus' first coming had different aspects, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Well, the return of the Lord, there's a rapture of the church where he comes for his church. And then there's the second coming of Jesus Christ that we know will be at the end of the tribulation period. And please... Don't let anybody tell you because it's a growing trend. I have people that call me on the radio. They'll they'll email me. There's no rapture of the church. And I think, what Bible are you reading? Because it's very clear in the scriptures. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's pretty clear to me. That there will be a generation of Christians that will be caught up, harpazo in the Greek, Actually, in the Latin, it's rapturous. 
That's where we get our word rapture. That's going to meet the Lord in the air. We know 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, We shall not all sleep. In other words, not everyone's going to die physically, but we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. He's speaking of the rapture of the church. So don't let anyone fool you into thinking that the rapture is not biblical. It is a major theme of the New Testament that wise is the one who is looking for the coming of the Lord. It's a commandment of the Lord. I've had those who have said to me, well, it's not important for us to be looking for the Lord or thinking about it. That's not the heart of Scripture, and it's not the heart of our Lord. That we are warned over and over again and exhorted that we are to be watching, we are to be alert, we are to be sober, we are to be vigilant. I come as a thief in the night. Don't let the, this day overtake you, you know, because you're not paying attention. Don't be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of life. We are to be wise looking for the return of the Lord. And if we are doing that, then we are going to be ones that is going to have a purifying effect on our lives. We're not just going to be enamored with this life and prioritizing this life in this world, which is going to go away. Listen. It doesn't mean that we don't do well in our businesses or work hard for our families or enjoy things in this life. But the Lord is the priority. Are we understanding that? Because the world's going to lie to you and deceive you and leave you empty. And the world's going to come to a terrible end. And if you make the Lord the priority of every area of your life, every day of your life, it's going to have a purifying effect on your life. Because he who has this hope, the return of the Lord, that perhaps my Lord who died for me and loves me so much, maybe perhaps today he'll come back. Because Jesus said, I come at a time that you least expect it. This is a doctrine called the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That I come when you do not know. He emphasized that over and over again. And we see that doctrine of imminent return all throughout the scriptures in the New Testament particularly is where we see it, that we're to be watching because we don't know the day or the hour that he comes back. But it could be. There's no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for the rapture of the church. So live for him. Be looking for him. And besides, tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And then number four. As we finish this chapter very quickly, and as we go into the next chapter... And into the next chapter, through chapter 12, these are heavy things for sure. As Jesus said, it will be great tribulation. That if Christ had not come back, that man would have destroyed himself. Paul wrote about the day of the Lord. He said concerning the day of the Lord, that it's going to be a time of darkness. It's going to be a time of wrath. But we don't have to be troubled by it. We can be comforted. Even as Paul wrote about the rapture, he said, comfort one another with these words. When he even wrote about the day of the Lord, he said, concerning the day of the Lord, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he said, Brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering to him, we say, don't be shaken in mind or troubled as though the day of Christ has come. And even Jesus himself would say, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So John, the last living apostle that wrote the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, 
At the end of the first century, the Christians were being persecuted very heavily by Domitian. He was killing thousands and thousands of Christians. He hated Christians. He thought church tradition tells us that if I can get rid of John, the last living apostle, then this thing called Christianity will go away. So they took John to the amphitheater there in Caesarea. The amphitheater is full. They lower him down into a pot of boiling oil. And the crowds are cheering. And John is praising the Lord. And as they lower him down, nothing happens. And Domitian is so watching this, so troubled by it, he screams out, get him out of here. So they banished him, we know this for sure, to the island of Patmos. And there the angel comes to him and says, John, write these things down. That must, must, must. Not maybe, perhaps. Here's a wild story for you that they must shortly come to pass. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. After the death of Domitian, John ends up back in Ephesus, it is believed. He brings back that book, the book of Revelation, revealing Jesus Christ to a fuller degree because they needed to know in the first century as we need to know in the 21st century that he's on the throne. And he rules. And he's in control. And he's coming back. And you're going to come back with him. And you're going to rule and reign with him. And that is so awesome to think about. But for right now, he loves you. So live for him. Walk with him. Learn of him. And as you do, you're going to see the Lord doing things in your life and growing you and your love for him because we have the hope that we will see him. So keep our, let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Amen? Amen. And be wise. Be the faithful servant that is looking for the master's return. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these reminders to us that are very important for our daily lives and the days in which we are in. So help us to keep our eyes on you and, Lord, to be wise, the wise servant, faithful servant. Is looking for our master's return. And I also want to pray for anyone who's here. Maybe you're listening to this message. That if you have not come to Christ, he is your salvation. He is your hope. He has provided forgiveness. He loves you, and the invitation is for you to come to him to give your heart and life to him to confess that you're a sinner because all of us have sinned we're all guilty and the wages of sin is death but Jesus Christ came to bring you life he died in place of you and for you as he took your sins upon himself and made atonement for your sins he cried out it is finished he did the work he paid the price Christ paid it all and then he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death, proving he's the Son of God. Come to him. As you believe in him and confess with your mouth, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you can do that right now. Sincerely in your heart.
You can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose from the grave, and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior because I know that you're on the throne. I do want to live for you. I want to know you better, know you more. Help me to live for you in a way that is pleasing before you. Thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. For all of us, day by day, walking with you, Lord, being sensitive to your leading, learning of you, as you conform us into the image of Christ. Help us to be strong in those times where we're confronted and challenged and the enemy comes against us, knowing that you are faithful and true. Thank you for this morning and pray you bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.